1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdur, professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with C.T. Nguyen. Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Utah. His new book, Games, Agency as Art, is just out from Oxford University Press. Monopoly, Solitaire, Football, and Minecraft are all games. But for Nguyen, they are also an art form, specifically the art form of agency, our capacity to set goals and pursue them. According to Nguyen, a game designer sculpts agency by specifying the goals and abilities of the potential player, what the player should care about, and what their abilities are in the game environment. The resulting disposable ends and interesting struggles yield valuable aesthetic experiences that enhance our capacities for autonomous agency. Yet Nguyen also warns of the harmful effects of the gamification of real life, when the simple goals and motivations in games leak into our real-world agency and can lead to social and
1: moral disaster. Let's turn to the interview.
2: Um, hello, C.T. Nguyen. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
2: Uh, so we're talking about games, agency as art. Um, uh, before we get to the actual text of the book, Um, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself, how you came to philosophy, how you came to think about games in a philosophical way, Um, you know, how you came to write the book.
1: Yeah, the book is this, I am, so it turns out that I'm completely surprised that this is the book I wrote out uh, about in philosophy, but it also turns out that all of my friends who knew me are completely unsurprised and are like, of course, this is like the most logical you know, path for your life and career. So, I mean, I was in philosophy. uh, I was trained as a very Spog standard meta ethics and epistemology person. Um, I was really interested in aesthetics, but actually, like I was told, and I think this is fairly accurate, not to specialized in aesthetics because there are no jobs in aesthetics. This is actually true. So I did a lot of work in value theory and aesthetics was always in the back of my mind, but there's just not, there's there's no jobs in it. There's there were weren't people that specialized in it in my graduate school. So it was always kind of back burner. Um and as I was leaving grad school, I was starting to teach a few classes and I taught a class in aesthetics and I did a case study on games. And I've always been a game player. Like I've cared about games deeply. Um and I started reading the academic work on games, and I got uh, I got really angry, which I think is true of a lot of the things I write about now. It starts with me getting really angry. And I got really angry because it seemed like a lot of the theory was based on readily applying theory that we already had, like games are a kind of fiction or games are a kind of argument or stuff like this, and not actually specializing in what games are really special what makes games really special i I would read whole books and they would talk about all this really complex literary analysis of games but they never talk about difficulty or skill or choice and so i started writing in this stuff and i started writing what was supposed to be just like one i thought it would just be one quick paper on one small point that like bugged me and then like each time i wrote something like it would like grow tentacles and i would find like more incredibly interesting stuff in there that i I did not expect to find. And then there was a book, like I'd basically written the pieces of a book before I hadn't had even like expected to.
2: Oh, very good. Okay, well, I mean, hard to get that enthusiastic. (laughs) But um, so, yeah, your, your slogan is, you know, games are the art form of agency. So every word of that can be can be picked apart in analytic fashion, games, art form, agency, um, and we will do that. Um, so let's start with games, right? I mean, I think, yeah, you know, there's, there's all kinds of games. So what is a game to you or what, uh, of the entire world of games, which are the games that matter for your analysis?
1: Yeah, so my analysis is supposed to be extremely broad. It's supposed to include video games, board games, card games, sports. I'm a rock climber. Rock climbing comes up a lot. Uh, The working definition of a game I use is Bernard Suits's. So if people in the audience don't know, there is like one amazing classic in analytic philosophy about the nature of games. It's Bernard Suits' The Grasshopper, um, which is, by the way, just... If you haven't read... I mean, have you read this book,
2: Carrie? No, I, I, you know... I, I'm not a gamer, Bless so me. no. <laughs> no
1: Sutja's book is just kind of cla- so, yeah. Um, Suits book is this kind of like lost classic that kind of disappeared and then started getting revived. Tom Herka really pushed it. It's written as this marvelous defense of idleness. As a, I'm not sure I even talk about this in the book, but it's a pseudo-Socratic dialogue between the grasshopper and his, you know, the grasshopper from the ant and the grasshopper fable. Um, yeah. So the ant is supposed to work all summer. The grasshopper is supposed to be idle. And, you know, in the in the traditional fable, the grasshopper dies and you're supposed to learn your lesson. And Suits' book starts with the grasshopper on his deathbed, surrounded by his disciples. And his disciples <laughs> are like... <laughs> you're starving, let us let us farm, let us feed you. And he says, no, no, says the grasshopper. I would rather die for my commitment to idleness than turn you all into ants. And then it proceeds as this marvelous, charming dialogue in which he takes himself to be responding to Wittgenstein's claim that games can't be defined, and he offers a definition of games. Uh, there's a short version and a long version. The short version is uh, playing a game is... Uh, the voluntary undertaking of unnecessary obstacles to make possible the activity of struggling to overcome them. Um, so, I mean, this is this is this is an incredibly rich analysis. But basically, the idea of the games is that the obstacles are the point. So, Suits' analysis is that the end point you're trying to get to in a game, insofar as you're playing a game, isn't valuable in itself. So, I think the idea is like the end. The the finish line of a marathon, that's not what you're trying to get to uh, just for the sake of being there. Because if you were just trying to get there for the sake of being at that point in space, uh, you would take the most efficient means. You would hire a Lyft or an Uber or take a bicycle. But the fact that it doesn't count as doing the thing you're doing unless you're doing it under certain constraints means that those constraints partially constitute the goal. Does that make sense? So. So he, there's this notion that a game is and uh, that your activity in the game, that the goal is partially constituted by the constraints and obstacles that the rules set on you. Uh, and this, I think, is an amazing definition. I don't think it's actually a definition that encompasses every uh, every possible use of game. Actually, the first thing I ever wrote in this space was a claim that Suits was wrong in his response to Wittgenstein that you ca- caught. Everything. I don't think a lot of like children's make believe games, uh, 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 make believe games fit here. But I think like the thing that he's carved off is this incredibly rich human phenomenon, uh, and it's worth analyzing. So the the book isn't about games in the full colloquial use. The book is about games in the Sutian sense, which I think is like this specific, really rich part of human life.
2: Okay, and you also distinguish uh, importantly striving games, I guess, versus achievement games, and it sounds like it's the striving ones that are the critical ones, right?
1: Yeah. So this is so I think this is this is uh, this this is a distinction that I make, but I really think it's like it's just lying under the surface in the suit. It's like there throughout the book, and he just doesn't make it explicit. So in my analysis, there are two ways to play a game. Um, Achievement play and striving play. So, achievement play is playing a game for the value of winning, and striving play is playing a game for the value of being engaged in the struggle. So, if you're an achievement player, you really just care about the win. I think there are a lot of achievement players. And if you're a striving player, then you're temporarily taking on an interest in winning the game for the sake of going through that struggle. Um, and this is like, this is the, this is the super interesting category. This is the thing that I think exposes all this like rich stuff in human life that we, especially philosophers ignore. Uh, and there's, there's an argument. I think this is like the center of the book is an argument about, um, uh, is an argument about, uh, is an argument about, um, the nature of, Uh, Sorry, the center of the book is an argument uh, about striving play's possibility and then all the implications you should take from it. So uh, probably the most important argument in the book is the book that striving play is possible. There are a few arguments here, but one, I think one easy way into it is to think, look, okay, there are all kinds of things we do where during the game, we struggle as hard as we can to win. And after the game, we actually don't care if we want. So one way to put it is, there's a distinction in a lot of gameplay, not all gameplay, but in a lot of gameplay between the goal of the game and the purpose of playing a game. So a lot of the times the goal of the game is to win, but the purpose of the game is to have fun or relax or to enjoy yourself or pass the time. And I mean, one way we can tell this is if I play a game of charades at a party, in order to have fun, I have to try to win but once the game is through i don't look back and think like oh my god i lost the game my evening is wasted right like what i do is i look back at the game and i think oh did we have did everyone have fun so i don't so during the game i have to aim at and in some sense care deeply about winning and after the game is through since it's driving play i discard that so i think the most my favorite my but I actually have a favorite moment in this book, and it's the following argument, which I think originally this was like 10 pages of technical philosophy, but I figured out a way to do it in one paragraph. So here's the argument for striving play. Uh, consider the category of stupid... Oh yeah, no, this is, this is, this is the, possibly my proudest moment in philosophy is when I figured out how to condense 10 gross pages into this one argument. So the argument is, consider the category of stupid games. A stupid game is a game where the fun part is failing. But in order to have fun, you have to try to win. So examples include Twister, a lot of drinking games, the children's game of telephone, or you try to pass around a phase, phrase and see how garbled it is. But I think the key idea is the fun part is failing. Like the failure is really funny, but it's only funny as a failure. And it's only a failure if you were really genuinely trying to win right so if you like aim at falling and twister it's not funny it's like so it must be that we have this capacity this capacity for striving play where we can decide oh the fun thing i want to do the thing i want to do is this have this hysterical failure and then induce myself in myself this temporary absorption in trying to win right mm. so that's that. that's the argument that striving play is real
2: okay um so i'm just wondering you know there, there must be other restrictions because like, I'm thinking, for example, if I, uh, you know, I, I, I sign up for a course um, that's really difficult, um, and so I don't have to take it. It's not, like, required for my major or anything like that. But I take it just, like, kind of for the challenge in order to overcome that. Uh, but that wouldn't, I, you know, again, intuitively, that would not my taking this challenging course that I don't have to take isn't, isn't a game. And, and another case that I was thinking was, you know, you're, you're in a job and, and, you know, the job sort of, you know, recommends that you take this training course that you, you know, really don't want to take. Uh, and, but you, but you take it anyway, um, because then you get some sort of a stupid certificate or something like that. Um, And again, I mean, you're sort of, you're voluntarily, you're not forced to take the course. Um, And it does involve a, you know, taking on, on you know, an unnecessary obstacle to a goal that you need to overcome. So I'm just, I'm just wondering, there must be some sort of more restriction in terms of, you know, which activities that we, where we do have, where we voluntarily take on unnecessary obstacles, you know. and And go through the process, you know maybe enjoy value the process um that wouldn't be
1: games right. so I have a accurate technical rigorous answer, and then I have the real answer lurking behind it <laughs> so let me let me give you the accurate rigorous answer so the accurate, i mean to do it in uh so to do it in um to do it in suits is the language of suits is the the easier definition so the easy the simpler definition is you're taking on voluntary obstacles for the make of for the sake of making possible a particular kind of activity so i think the idea is something like look it's until you take on that dribbling constraint you're not even playing basketball like that constraint brings the activity into being and that's something special about games that you don't like In other cases, you may value the process and you va- may value the struggle, but you don't take on the obstacles to make possible that activity. Uh, so I think at this point, it's easier to actually go into Suits' full technical definition. So Suits' full definition of the game, like what I was using before is what he calls the portable, easy-to-remember definition, is that games have... Um, uh, they have uh, a pre goal, which is a specification of a state of affairs that you're trying to reach but specified without any rules or constraints just like move the ball through the hoop or cross the finish line that's a pre-lusory goal then there are constitutive rules that specify uh, there are constitutive rules that specify certain constraints uh, on the pursuit of the pre-lusory goal and then there's the losory goal which is the pre-lusory goal as achieved within the constraints so one way to put it is passing the ball through the hoop is the pre-lusery goal. That's just a stri- description of the end state where making a basket is the losery goal because it doesn't count as making a basket if you just like go to the hoop with, some, with a ladder and just pass the ball through, right? You have to be doing it against opponents following the dribbling rule. And then the losery attitude is adopting the constitutive rules and pursuing the losery goal in order to make possible a particular kind of activity. So that suits his account of a game. And I think it's like actually quite powerful. So, so if you think about this, so something that's really important about this is that the the definition allows both for people that want to win and people that want to win for the sake of a, an instrumental good that follows from the wind, like money, versus uh, people that are engaged uh, in some kind of similar looking but non-game activity. So... Uh, here's an example that uh, I've adapted a little bit from Suits and added to. So consider three people climbing a mountain. One of them is a professional mountain climber. He's trying to climb K2 because like, you know, he's going to, if he's the first to do it, he's going to get like fame and accolades and glory. Okay. Imagine someone else. She is an amateur mountain climber. She's just doing it because she wants to climb the mountain for the struggle itself. She wants to get to the top of the struggle. And the third is a doctor who's trying to get to the top of the mountain because there's some kind of rare herb there that will like help heal some whatever condition, right? So the professional climber and the amateur climber both count as game players because the activity they're doing, the goal they're pursuing doesn't count as that particular goal unless they did it within the constraint of going up the mountain of their own hands and of their own feet right and the basic test here is the helicopter is going by the professional's got if a, a helicopter is going by and the helicopter like offers the climbers a ride the professional won't take it because the professional won't get any accolade or money for taking the helicopter the amateur won't take it because what the amateur wants is the struggle but the medical doctor will take it cuz all they want is to get to the top in and of itself So that's the restriction on games, right? So there's the technical, possibly boring answer. The real answer, I think, is that uh, Seuss thinks that a lot of activities are games. He thinks that almost any activity we can do, we can do for its own sake because we value the end product. Sorry, any activity we can do, we can do in an ordinary practical way because we value the activity, or we can do in a game-like way um, because... uh, we could do it in a game-like way, um, and here's this example. where He says, like, imagine we've already solved like all the medical problems. You might imagine bored people in Utopia like going back and like trying to resolve the curing of cancer using 20th century medical technology, and that's a game which they're doing for the interestingness of the game, right? Um, uh, so, but I think the the biggest answer behind here is I think there are plenty striving. The account of striving play um, that I gave is specific to a Suthian game, but there's just, in general, a value we take in striving, which is the value uh, to be engaged in the process of the activity. And I think you can find that all kinds of places, even if they're not technically games. I suspect that many philosophers are drawn to philosophers partially or wholly for striving reasons. I think uh, one of the things that I get out of the suits is once you crystallize this category in games, because it's very easy to see because games are quite formalized, you start to see it everywhere.
2: Mm. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, science, you know, people who pursue science for science sake rather than to get a cure for cancer or something like that. You know, there's rules that they're, you know, that, so there's a, yeah, it sounds like there's, there's gaming and then there's games and they're, you know, we have some sort of vague idea of what things are kind of games because, uh, well, this kind of gets into fiction and things like that. So I don't want to, I don't want to go there at least not yet. Um, but let's let's talk about agency because that's a huge, you know, that's a huge part of your um, analysis of games as you know, um, you know, the agency aspect as also underwriting the the idea that games are an an art form right so you know you what do you what do you mean by you know agency and the you have the fluidity of agency and it's layered and um so there's a lot of different concepts that you introduce around the concept of agency so tell us about that part of your
1: approach right so the core idea of th- talking about games in in terms of agency was, I mean, so this started as originally just a point in aesthetics before it like exploded on me. So the point in aesthetics is this. So a lot of people are trying to talk about games as a kind of fiction or games as a kind of cinema where the essential medium of games is something like interactive stories or something like that. That's what the, the designer is, is trying to uh, that's what the designer is manipulating to get their effects and i was reading a lot of game design uh blogs at the time and like interviews with game designers and they kept saying things like so reiner Kinetti is one of my favorite board game designers he said something like the most important tool in my toolbox is the point scoring structure because the point scoring structure sets people's motivations in the game and i was like wait what <laughs> That sounds incredibly interesting. And I thought about it, and what, what he's saying is, I mean, and his games actually have these incredibly lovely scoring structures. Like, one of the games, there are four different colors you can score in, and at the end of the game, your, your score is whatever category you're lowest in. Right? Does that make sense? So you're collecting red, blue, yellow, and green. Uh, and at the end of the game, your score is whichever color you have the least of. And so suddenly you're not devoted to maxing out one thing. You're devoted to, like... Um, balancing your portfolio, right, or stuff like that. So I was thinking about this. So there's, this, there's also this, in over in game studies, which is an interdisciplinary field, people spend a lot of time talking about how game designers don't just create environments, they create affordances, they create ability sets, but they didn't talk about the motivation stuff as much. When I started looking at the game designer stuff, I realized, oh my God, what's actually going on is the game designer is specifying particular agent or an agential skeleton and i just mean here that they're telling you what your motivation is in the game what you're trying to do and i mean really like are you trying to kill everyone else are you trying to cooperate with half the people to beat the other half of the people are you in like new style cooperative games trying to cooperate with everyone to beat the pandemic right um Sorry, that's a, in case people don't know, that's, just, that's not just like a bad COVID joke. The most famous cooperative game right now is called Pandemic, which, in which you all play <laughs> members of the CDC trying to beat a pandemic. And apparently a lot of people are stress playing this every night right now. Um, yeah. So when, what I was thinking about was you open up the rules of the game. So I'm, I'm thinking here about board games where I think some of the stuff is clearest. And you read the rules and they don't just tell you what you can do. They tell you what to care about. Uh, and each of those creates, like, a different, a different practical focus. So I was really interested in the fact that some games, like chess, you're, like, thinking super in terms of, like, tactical look-ahead. And other games, uh, like Tetris, you're thinking in this terms of, like, this pure rotational stuff. And other games, like these social games I love, like Spyfall and Diplomacy, you're just thinking about the other players uh motivate their motivations how to incentivize them how to lie to them how to deceive them to how to hide your attentions and so what i ended up saying is what the game designer manipulates is three things in in essence one is the motivations player motivations of the game by saying the score the other is what the player's abilities and affordances are by both constraints and introducing new abilities uh, which happens a lot in video games um and then the, in the, the practical environment that the, the, um, that those abilities, affordances, and goals will impact. And so my like, TED Talks slogan way of uh, compressing all of this is to say that games are the art form of agency. Or more specifically, that the game designer works in the medium of agency by specifying exactly what kind of agential skeleton you'll slip into, what motivations and affordances you'll slip into and fill out. Does that, does that start to explain it?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's very helpful. So so in this case, the, it's the, see, this was another thing that I was actually not not clear about. Um, you know, if it's, an and, and I do want to get into the idea of it, uh, you know, whether it, should be considered an art form but we can we can get to that um so the game designer um is you know is essentially as you put it or as i might put it you know designing the form of agency for this moment of one's life or something like that um so the designer is is i take it is the is the artist right and what are you as the game player because um you know so to take the rock climbing example if that's a game uh you know who, who's the who's the creator there who's the artist
1: who's the creator okay yeah um so <laughs> let me <laughs> let me actually go back and fill in I forgot the second half of your previous question and I have to answer that before I can answer That's fine. (laughs) The question you just asked. So, what you're asking about before was uh, what agency was, and then you asked about what I meant by the stuff about the fluidity of agency and the Mm -hmm. layering of agency, and these are these are crucial concepts for working through the second half of the book. So, um, what I mean by the fluidity of agency is just the stuff I talked about before: the fact that a player has this like really remarkable remarkable ability to step into, and then set aside a form of agency. So I think if you if you work through a lot of uh, the stuff from practical reasoning, uh, the theory of practical reasoning, you tend to get this image. It's never quite explicitly stated, but this image of this extremely static agent that has certain enduring ends, and those ends animate them at all times. And what it looks like in the game space is like really different, right? Like I can, you know, I'm hanging out with my spouse um, who's here, by the way, as I'm recording at the other half of our home office, uh, grinning at me whenever whenever I say something weird. Um, so uh, so we're hanging out. We, we have no competition with each other at all. And then we pick up a game and we read the rules and the game tells us compete. And then we slip into this thing and we just try as hard as we can to beat each other. And then afterwards, we step back and we just... Let it dissipate. And we sat back and we're like, oh, you know, that was a really cool game. That was really interesting. Right. We don't say like we don't continue to be like, oh, I'm still trying to beat you. Right. We have this we have this kind of segmentation in our agency where we can step into and step out of this like devoted state that's actually quite phenomenally rich and powerful. Like before and after, I don't care about beating my. at this game but during the game like it's the center of my consciousness to the point that like my adrenaline spikes right when yeah, when i like see an opportunity or like i see her like trap is constricting like fear fills me um so that's and i think this shows us something pretty remarkable about our capacities the next thing that i think we have a capacity to do is to layer our agency because what's, re- what's really interesting is the fact that so when i'm playing a game I mean, I have a very computer image in my head, but there's like, there's a primary thing I'm doing, which is I'm totally focused on winning. But in the background, I'm running this little, like, operating system or something that knows that the whole point was to have fun. Mm. Now, that having fun, um, that having fun doesn't dominate. So uh, here, I think it's even clearer if you think, so my background purpose is... Uh, I wanna have fun. But during the game, in order to have fun, I can't be thinking about my fun and my spouse's fun, right? So what in order to have the characteristic fun of a lot of games, what I have to be thinking about is just what are the moves that will win? How do I beat my spouse, right? Um, mm. So there's that weird layering, but we know that layers are there in the background because we know that if the situations are right, then the background layer can just cancel things. So if every, if I'm playing a game and everyone's just miserable, um, we can just be like, okay, hold on. Uh, we've just noticed everyone's miserable. Let's just stop the game. This is just a bad game. And the fact that we have that background capacity to notice that we're failing in our purpose, even if most of the time we're ignoring our purpose, shows this layer. Um, I, I think the most... There's this really interesting phenomenon that actually came up. Um, so... Chris York is another philosopher of games. And I was giving an early version of this talk. And he said something like, well, if striving as play is real, then shouldn't I like, whenever I'm about to win, shouldn't I throw the game to go back into the struggle? Like, I don't want to win. That would make me end the struggle. <laughs> and similarly, uh, Matt Haber, right? It's it's interesting, right? So Matt Haber, uh, the, uh, my, the chair uh, at University of Utah, told me this story. He said, like, he was... Playing Monopoly with his ten-year-old son, and uh, for the first time ever, the son was beating Matt, and the okay. son was just ecstatic about it. And Matt always was like, "Something this weird thing happened," because he said he was about to lose, and then he'd look over and see like a little more money than he thought he'd had, and he'd keep playing, and then he realized his son was like reverse cheating, like so he was distracting Matt to look away, and the son would like slip a little more money into Matt's pot st- pile, so that Matt would play longer, and the son could. <laughs> keep beating Matt, and you're like okay this is hysterical and the sun is missing something but what is what is the sun missing and i think the answer is we have this weird capacity to submerge ourselves in this like inner layer of agency and what we do is so we adopt in striving play we adopt as our purpose an interesting struggle but then we kind of have to forget it during the game in this very interesting way, because if we maintain the constant awareness that our goal is to have an interesting struggle, then we'll have to have this weird, anxious double consciousness where if we're about to win, we have to anticipate that and then shut ourselves off from winning in order to have keep having that struggle. So I think what we actually have is a capacity to set up an agency in a game, a, a su- you call it a sub-agency or an inner-agency that is just devoted to winning. We set it up for the purpose of having an interesting struggle and then we submerge ourselves in the inner-agent and we mostly put ourselves out of touch with an awareness of the main reason we're there. And once you see that structure, I think you can see it all over the place. I think it's... One way to put it is that in a a lot of games, games are there for pursuing self-effacing ends. So so self-effacing ends are ends that can't be pursued directly I think the best example I have is a lot of the times so I rock climb and the reason I rock climb is to relax. But relaxing is an end that's really hard to pursue directly, right? If you just sit there being like, relax, relax. You can't do it. <laughs> so, in some sense, I mean, I, I'm not maybe this is neurotic, but I think a lot of people have this experience where if you're trying to relax and you keep in your mind the fact that you're trying to relax, then you're just going to fail to relax. So, I rock climb by devoting myself to the attempt to climb this damn wall. My reason is to relax, but in order to relax, I have to forget while I'm climbing that I'm trying to relax and just focus on getting up the wall. So that's right. a gentle submersion. And all that stuff is important for the next question. Okay. Okay, <laughs> so,
2: good, yeah.
1: Um, okay, so now we're on your other question, uh, your your more recent question about who's the artist.
2: Okay, okay. So yeah,
1: right. there's actually a really interesting... Right. Who's the artist? Is it the game designer or the player? So there's actually this interesting tradition in uh, the work on in the aesthetics of games, where some people want to say like, look, uh, people like Dominic Lopez want to say like, it's the the game designer is the artist. They made this algorithm. They made this choice space. All you're doing as a player is exploring it. And then other people, um, like Paul Crowther, want to say, no, no, no. The game player is like the game player is at least either the artist or a collaborator with the game designer because they're inventing things, they're creative, they're making things up during the game. Um, and I kind of think actually like there's not a single answer for all games. There's, there's an incredible variety of games. But here's one way to think about it. Um, so suppose for the moment that the artist is whoever had the, the artistic or creative insights that put like some of the aesthetic qualities there into the game. So I think, and I think we're going to talk about this a lot more. uh, I think that in a game, the big difference aesthetically between a game and uh, a lot of traditional forms of art is in traditional forms of art, the object that the artist made is the bearer of aesthetic properties. So the novel is the thing that's beautiful. The movie is the thing that's thrilling. And in games, a lot of the times the primary bearer of the most important aesthetic properties isn't the game itself. It's the player right? It's the player who their actions are beautiful or graceful or thrilling, right? That emerges in their action in response to the game. So I definitely think that. And then some people are like, okay, then it's obvious if it's the player that's beautiful, then they're the artist. And I think that's true in some cases, but in a lot of other cases, what it looks like is the game designer has created the situation such that when the player isn't trying to be beautiful at all, but just is trying to win the game, their actions kind of emergently become beautiful um, or graceful or thrilling or comically clumsy or whatever aesthetic property is happening in this space. Um, so I think it's, it's really useful. Uh, I was looking around and I found this really useful account from Nick Zangwill uh, about who has aesthetic and artistic responsibility. And Zangwill's account is, so the, the artist is, he says, whoever has an insight that a certain arrangement of non-aesthetic properties um, will lead to an aesthetic property. So uh, this is something like a painter realizes putting this line here and that color there will create like a gloomy mood, right? And I think a lot of the times it's the game designer who realizes oh if i put this rule here and that rule there and create this kind of platforming jump then the player will very likely have an experience of gracefulness when they get through it um in that case when it looks like that i think the game designer is more like the artist there are other cases like tabletop role-playing games where it's kind of free uh, the uh, the game designer creates kind of a free-form set of tools and a lot of the times the players are self-consciously generating. Um, an interesting narrative knowing that if they do a certain thing, then the narrative will be interesting. And there it looks much more like the artist is a collaboration or uh, it's that the artistry is lies primarily with the player. So it's going to vary a lot, but I think in a lot of games, the player doesn't understand what about the game makes their actions beautiful? They're responding to the game and somehow through them, the game makes them beautiful or whatever. And that, that's cases where it looks much more like the game designer is the artist.
2: Well, would I mean, would it be helpful or, or harmful to think of the distinction made between say a work and a performance?
1: Mm. Yeah. So this is, uh, so a lot of people want to say something like, Oh, uh, there's um, so the game is the work. Uh, so just as the the classical score is the work, and then a particular symphony is uh, it creates a performance of the work. They want to say something like that about games. I think I, I, I'm a little worried about that. I think a lot of the times we miss something specific about games when we quickly assimilate them to like relationships we find in other artworks. And I think one of the main things, if you look at what musical performance and other kinds of performance look like is the performer is trying to bring out and expose and interpret and add an interpretation to certain kinds of aesthetic qualities that are present in the script or the score, right? They, they see something. I mean, I, I was a piano player and you see like a certain gloomy grandeur in this Beethoven piece and you try to bring it and then you put your own spin on it, but it's your own spin on it. And you're in direct contact with, um, like the whole time when I'm when I'm uh, when I'm playing piano, uh, my focus is on this aesthetic property and bringing it out. Where in games, you don't focus on being beautiful. A lot of the, what happens in most games is you focus on winning. You go through the instrumental calculations to win, and then the beauty happens kind of emergently out of your natural functions as you try to win. So I think that's a Huge difference between those. I mean, in a very big general sense, there is this kind of two-stage ontology where there's, you know, there's a game, and then there are performances of the game. But all the mm-hmm. details look really different.
2: Okay. Um, and then, I mean, I just to just to see what. So, in the in the case of rock climbing, I asked you, you know, who is the designer oh. there?
1: Oh yeah. Right. So that's really interesting. So, um, so in some cases, you might think. It's just you'd be tempted to say, oh it's it's a natural beauty, but actually what it looks like is, I think rock climbers have modulated a certain rule set so that the rule set gets really interesting when it confronts parts of nature, and then they they rock climbers actually go go around in nature trying to find um, uh, uh trying to find um bits of nature. That really wake up and get really interesting against those rules. So it's, I, I, it's, it's super. It's, it's a very odd example. And I think here, what I'm tempted to say is something like, um, the, the examples of artistry look. The examples that look, uh, of art that look the most like our conventional notions of artistry are things like video games and board games, where someone just has full control over some bit of plastic like some fully plastic environment uh, and rule set where rock climbing is like this quirky thing where a community has slowly evolved the set of rules that specifically designs an agency it gives you a motivation and it gives you um, a specific set of abilities so for example in most rock climbing you're not supposed to pull down on your rope or gear you're only supposed to make contact with the rock with your hands and feet. Uh, and then we go around in nature trying to find things that are really interesting. And often we do a fair amount of sculpting. So when you go through, if you, if you do a rock climb, if you're actually, except in a few cases, when you go rock climbing, it'll often say things like, well, the problem is you start on these two holes and don't touch that hole because that makes the problem boring. And then go right instead of straight up because then the problem is more interesting. And so whoever found that and like made that specification uh, of what the climb is is kind of I don't know, applying a little bit of sculpture to something in the in in nature in order to bring out these aesthetic qualities in the climb.
2: mm mm-hmm. Okay. I mean that makes sense. Um, well, let's. I mean we've been talking about aesthetic properties, and um, so one of one of the things I was wondering was why you think games are an art form. I mean I'm I'm and I'm thinking here of. Um, uh, you know, your, your sort of popular contemporary definitions of art, right? So leave out the old Platon- Platonic and Tolstoy and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, the contemporary ones are usually, are in some sense institution-based, right? So they're related to the art world. Um, games, and, you know, particularly, the, you know, just about any of the ones that you're talking about, um, from rock claiming to monopoly, whatever, they are not made, uh, you know, designed, whatever, for presentations of the art world, which is, you know, a institutional standard, widely accepted definition that at least, you know, enables us to have a grasp on what is art and what is not art that, that allows in things like conceptual art and, you know, all, all the sort of weird stuff that has happened since, you know early 1900s or something so it seems it's it just seems like games uh don't satisfy our most popular enduring definitions of what it is for something to be an art form
1: right um so i will to be perfectly honest i uh don't particularly care whether games come out as art under the one true theory (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of yeah, art. I, uh, say, um,
2: I don't care you know but seri- <laughs> seriously right. i mean yeah
1: right okay so i can i can i actually have a better answer now than i did when i was writing the book um okay. so Great. one of the reasons i'm cagey is i think there are all these complexities in the right definition of art and it it's this exhausting huge uh monolith inside aesthetics uh and there are different accounts that i find moderately plausible so I really think that that art is a kind of fuzzy very clustery account with a that that doesn't have clear and uh, clear and sufficient conditions and that it's kind of a mistake to go about it but I also think there are two questions riding around uh, simultaneously when people ask the question of what whether something is art the question near the surface I think is often answered by this institutional theory but the question the real question for a lot of people who ask this question, the question they mean is something like, is this worth my time, right? Is, this, is there something aesthetically valuable here? Is there some other way in which this is enriching like the other arts? And I think it's important to look at this question because I think things like the institutional theory um, don't give a good answer to uh, normative questions. They don't help us navigate moments where we're trying to decide if we're members of an institution, right, whether to put the art in or not. Uh, the better answer I can give now uh, than I gave uh, than I gave in the book is based on uh, a new paper by an aestheticist named Elizabeth Kenamalesa. and her account is something like this: a lot of times arguments about art aren't arguments about whether this artwork fits into some clear definition. They're conceptual negotiations about what the boundaries of art should be, and when we enter into them, we're entering into a pragmatic negotiation about what we should call art, given our knowledge about the kind of status and importance and social power that that conveys. So really, I mean, I think this is a better answer. And so my answer now is, the real question here is whether it's worth paying attention to games as we pay attention to other arts, rather than this background question about whether the institutions have or have not, in fact, done it. And so the whole book is supposed to be an answer to this. The whole book is supposed to be an answer to the ways in which games are worthwhile, the ways in which games are aesthetically worthwhile, and the way in which games are a practice in which we act- people uh, design something, and that design brings forth or reveals or makes accessible a range of aesthetic properties and aesthetic experiences to their audiences. And for me, that's like, at at the point where you say something like, look, a game is a design thing, it's a practice uh, where some designer makes something for an aesthetic purpose and an audience members interact with it and they get something aesthetically valuable out of it that they wouldn't otherwise, then that's enough for me. And I think what, underneath here, the thing that I'm often hiding is that uh, I think my view is very dewey uh, and Dewey's take here is just that arts are crystallizations of aesthetic experiences in the world, like painting is the crystallization of the beauties and intensities and sublimities of looking around. And fiction is the crystallization of various natural storytelling and of narrative events. And for me, there's, in our life, as we walk around, there are all these, our our life is sodden with aesthetic value and aesthetic experiences like there is a beauty in how my mind moves when i solve a logic problem right there is a grace in me as i like dodge around a falling tree branch which just happened to me in the backyard Uh, but this is kind of like often random and inchoate in the world because the world's a frustrating and horrific place that we don't fit well and games are this thing where we have designers of created a crystallized artifact that highlights and concentrates these aesthetic experiences i mean one way to put it is i think that games uh that we don't fit the world well but games are made to fit us and our practical abilities to bring out more easily and intensely these aesthetic experiences of acting and deciding and doing
2: um okay i think that that
1: makes sense
2: um I mean, you do mention that in this whole idea of, you know, acting, deciding, doing, all the elements of agency, um, you know, that we talked about. Um, So that, you know, I I think that is an important distinction in that that's what we're sculpting in a way. Um, uh, Because I was, as you are talking, I was thinking, you know, one of the aesthetics you know, there's the aesthetics of the natural environment, right? Which is um, where you've got, you know, all these aesthetic experiences and things like that, but it's not as if... So there's there's aesthetics and aesthetic experience, and then there's art, right? And those are not the same. Um, and that's that's kind of what I was trying to probe, was, you know, you can have all these aesthetic experiences and not deny any of that and still wonder... You know whether we need to, you know, or should, in some sense, include it as a as an art form, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, I try to imagine what it would be like for that to be, you know, intended to be presented to the art world or something like that.
1: Right. Um, um I, I mean. So you can discompose the question of whether something is art into a lot of subquestions. Um, one so one big the thing that really makes me really tempted to use the language of art more than the language of natural aesthetic experiences is just the fact that they are that games are very carefully designed for the purpose of creating certain particular aesthetic experiences, and that uh, and they they do so. Through the creation of a stabilized work, right? That's close enough for me. And if if there if if someone is particularly attached to um, to this notion that the most important thing about whether something is art or not is that it's made for presentation to a certain pre established art world, then I'm happy to give up the term and say like, okay, then what I want to talk about is carefully sculpted designed objects designed to bring forth concentrated design aesthetic experiences. Give me a word for that. The closest I have is art, but I mean, beyond that, I, I don't care. What I care about is that there's a human practice of creation and sculpture and concentration and design of aesthetic experiences that's valuable, that's rich. I mean, the other thing to think is, I think there's, so since I've worked on this um, since I wrote the book, I've written another paper called The Arts of Action that tries to expand this category of, like, process-oriented arts um, uh, to things like social tango and cooking. And at this point, I'm at I'm a stage where I'm thinking something like, the real question for me is diagnostic. Like, why is it that things where the audience participates substantially and enjoys their own particular uh, the aesthetics of their own action. Why? Why has that been so traditionally excluded from the realms of arts? And these days, I'm fairly tempted towards um like simple market theoretic explanations. Like until games, uh, a lot of a lot of these things were very hard to package and very hard to sell. And so I've been reading. So Jennifer lena has this really interesting work. She's a sociologist in music and uh, and taste culture. And her book entitled she has this really interesting account of how like one of the one of the most important things to make something count as an art is it's displayed in museums and in order for it to do that it has to be something that can be like shipped and sold and that a lot of the art forms that don't get uh uptaken from other cultures that are clearly long-standing aesthetic practices are like the problem is like for example she gives this example about like free-flowing sand sculptures made in a like made in a seating area like you can't pick that up and sell it and so that's just not going to make it into museums so these days i'm much more tempted by a kind of like market error theory of why like you know aesthetic theory has been so obsessed with these like portable objects and it like refuses to look at the aesthetic richness of these designed more more interactive free-flowing practices
2: okay fair enough um, I did, I want to, uh, get back to a comment that you said, you know, in terms of the fluidity of agency, because this kind of gets to, at the end of the book where you, the, the social and moral, you know, downsides. I mean, for the most part, it's like, you know, yay agency and yay deciding and sculpting and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you also note at the end, and this is, it's a, it's a pretty important chapter is, um you know, the, the fact that there seems to be some sort of difficult, sometimes there's a difficulty, or, you know, where the forms of agency that you exercise within the game bleed out into the real world. And, and so um, there's, um, you know, various ways in which, um, even though uh, you're generally, you know, very, you know, gung-ho about, about you know, this artistic medium and things like that, um, you also notice that, you know, real life is sometimes, you know, gamified, you know, everything becomes sort of the game. We lose the track of where we are in some way or the habits and things we do within the game become part of the, you know, our behavior, you know, to other people in the real world. Um, can you, can you say a bit about this, this, you know serious problem
1: right first i should say i'm very gung-ho about games but i think i mean <laughs> i i will say straightforwardly that 90 percent of games are terrible and i ah. think this is not we, this is just like as what the more you love a medium the more you probably hate most instances of that medium right like lovers of movies probably hate most of what's out there in hollywood and i hate most especially large-scale mainstream games anyway background um so yeah so the i think games can be profoundly helpful to our freedom and autonomy and profoundly damaging to our freedom of, and autonomy and this this is this shouldn't be puzzling right because i mean i think where games are the most active is shaping forms of agency and so that's exactly where we'll find their greatest artistic benefit and their greatest way of harming us i mean i think about like so if you believe as I do, a lot of Martha Nussbaum's claims about how fiction transmits emotional perspectives. This explains exactly why fiction is can be incredibly enriching, morally, and also like is how the best way to spend to spread propaganda. Right? It's because of what it manipulates. So the positive. Let me give you the positive account of games is that games are the communication vessel for modes of agency, and that you can learn different modes of agency from games so this actually this is quite autobiographical for me when i started grad school i was you know a terrible analytic philosopher maybe you still think i'm a terrible analytic philosopher i couldn't i was so bad at thinking ahead of uh, and seeing these how arguments worked and chess basically gave me the mindset for it partially because chess is so clear and focused and crystallized that it's Possible to just concentrate on getting that like look aheady combative mindset. You can pick that up from chess. So I think a lot of games. Each game encodes a different practical mode of agency. Um, like diplomacy encodes manipulativeness. Basketball includes encodes this kind of like complex team oriented like spatial stuff, and then you can pick it up from games. And this can give you more. I mean, one way I put it in the book is that. Uh, our body of games is a library of different agencies because each game is a way to record a mode of agency and transmit it and have it picked up by someone else, so th- like other libraries, that can make you more free by giving you a greater inventory of different practical modes I mean, I think I learned how to be an adequate Machiavellian manipulator to like and you know help my department from being defunded right by playing Machiavellian manipulative games um so that's the positive side but that depends on a few things that depends on my not getting stuck in a particular agential mode in a game and my being able to move fluidly between different agential modes that i've learned from games i think if you play games in a particular like if you play a wide variety of games that are very different then games are a way to practice this kind of agential fluidity of moving between agen- different agential modes that's one possibility. There's another possibility, which is that you get stuck in one game mode and that the clarity and simplicity of games uh, would get you, rather than moving between them quickly, would just get you trapped in a way. And I think this is particularly e- clear when we look at gamifications, uh, pervasive gamifications uh, of everyday life, because that's not something that you can pivot easily away from. So, one of the claims I make at the end of the book is that um, so a lot of people worry about games. their biggest worry about games is people that players will export uh an atti- like violent attitudes, and there's a fair amount of research that most game players don't because they they know those that they know that the violence in games is fictional, but I'm much more worried about something that's non fictional in games, which is our attitude of all out competition for a clear set of quantified points um and that's what I'm really afraid of being exported from the game. I mean, the the slogan I have towards the end of the book is something like, uh, I'm not worried about games making serial killers. I'm worried about them making Wall Street bankers. And I am really worried that if you get used to the particular pleasure of having ultra clear, ultra quantified values um, mount up in a clear scoring system, then when you leave the game, if you're still craving that pleasure or if you expect the world to actually be like that, then you'll look for systems like that in the world. And that to me looks like becoming like an Enron executive and all being all in on uh, uh, doing anything you can to get more money or being the kind of academic that only cares about citation rates or being on Twitter and doing whatever, uh, whatever you can to get more Twitter points. I think there's another really important thing to think about. A lot of people tend to think like, oh, there are all these gamifications that give you extra motivation in the world like Fitbit and Strava and Twitter and that's awesome because games make things fun and then this stuff is fun too, right? So this is Jane McGonigal. I'm, I'm basically quoting Jane McGonigal's book, Reality is Broken. She's a like Silicon Valley gamification booster. Um, and and I think if you actually understand what makes games good, you'll understand that for that reason, gamifications are terrible. The thing that's interesting about games is that games are morally permissible, often because they have disposable ends. So in a game, if you and I play, um, uh, play one of these savage board games I love for the sake of having an interesting struggle, then the ends we adopt in the game are temporary and disposable if we're striving players, right? Uh, They're just things we take on for the moment in uh, in order to have an interesting struggle. And by my attacking you, I'm actually giving you an interesting struggle, right? The thing I'm attacking is only a temporary end, and by attacking you, I'm helping you achieve your real end, which is to have an interesting struggle. That's very specific to the designed environment of games. If you take that attitude to Twitter, I think you have a moral disaster, right? Because Twitter is not the pursuit of disposable ends in a detached secluded environment it's the pursuit of it's 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 a reward it's uh, basically i think what's happening is in order to make things pleasurable like a game you have to super simplify the goals and connect them to something that's easily measurable and so in order to bring that pleasure and thrill to twitter you have to hyper simplify the goals of communication right instead of this rich plurality of goals you instead get this like hyper narrow likes and retweets and we basically had a contest for a virality and popularity, and that is dangerous because it's not an actual game. Right?
2: Have you Have you thought? I mean, we're we're over time. So one, you know, last quick question here: um, Have you thought about the therapeutic or clinical um, applications of your theory?
1: Um, I've. N- I have not thought directly about the therapeutic or clinical applications. The thing I've been thinking about is, so um, since I've, I wrote this book a couple years ago, I've basically been working on this stuff at the end about gamification and this concept I call value capture, which is when you get sucked into institutions and their metrified ways of valuing and simplified ways of valuing. And I've been thinking that the playful attitude that I talk about of going in and out of games, um, that uh the agential fluidity of being totally absorbed in the goal and then stepping back from it and seeing it from a reflective distance uh and deciding for yourself whether those are good goals to follow that has a therapeutic potential against hyper simplified institutional metrified uh collapsed valuing um so yeah i've been thinking about that stuff a lot um
2: okay um, because that is my usual last question, which is, you know, what are you doing now? You know, you know, the book is sort of out there. Yeah. What's on your plate at the moment? So I guess now we know. Yeah, the,
1: <laughs> yeah. the 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 new project that's been obsessing me. I've been reading since the end of the book. Uh, I wrote the book. All the stuff about uh, from the sociology of quantification. And one way to put – the new work grows directly out of the games work, but in the new the, – the, the, the best way I have of putting it right now is in the games book, what I'm talking about is temporarily and playfully entering into a momentary relationship with an end. Then in the new work, what I'm thinking is that when you take on something like Fitbit or uh, when you start to judge your career as an academic in terms of H-index, Uh, You are adopting a value system, but instead of adopting one temporarily, often you're internalizing it for your entire life. And by doing so, you are basically letting an outside corporation, institution, and technology set your values for you. So the way I'm putting it now is basically you're outsourcing your values. You're outsourcing your values to like Apple or something like this, which does not strike me as a great idea.
2: (laughs) Uh, well on that note um, I think we should maybe stop using this particular technology for, for a recording but um, I appreciate your uh, your engaging with us in and uh, about your book um, and I look forward to seeing you know your future work on and games and, and other uh, other areas so um, thanks a lot for for talking with us today
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a great time.
2: Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with C.T. Nguyen, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Utah. His new book, Games Agency as Art, is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.